Show of hands. Resolutions. Is anybody brave enough to yell out what their resolution was? <laughs> You're like, no, that's why we made the resolution. We're trying to change it. We're not trying to broadcast it. Okay, so if you're a guest here, we're part of Churches of Christ, which is a collection of churches that are centered around Jesus. And the reason why is because we think he was the most um, stunning human being who's ever existed. We believe he's more than just a human being. He's God, that he's the hope of the world. He's the most influential person in human history, and no one even comes a close second. So we talk a lot about Jesus around here, and if you're a guest, I hope you see why we do. And since this is a time when a lot of people are talking about change, um, I want to talk about how churches change, how church people in churches change, because we're starting a series called Preaching What We Practice, and it's easy to focus on what happens in the assembly. But what I know is that churches around the world, big churches, small churches, churches that meet in cathedrals or under mango trees or in strip malls, churches... Gospel-centered churches all have this thing in common. And it's so common that you might not ever appreciate when you step back and realize this. But that's this. People who follow Jesus become changed over time. They're transformed. This is what Jesus does to us. And since this is a time when a lot of us are thinking about change, I want to talk about how Christians change because we change differently than other people. Now, if you're comfortable with your life and if the status quo works for you, then maybe this isn't for you. But if you've had a nagging, this nagging idea that that habit has turned into an addiction or that that anger problem you saw in your mom you're starting to see in your mirror if there's this constant low-grade sense of anxiety or unhappiness in your life, then I encourage you to engage this. Because all of us change. The question is, do you like the person you're changing into? So one of our kids a couple of months ago had done something really impulsive. And I went to talk to him about it. And I thought, this is a life lesson. And I was going to tell him the story uh, from the Bible you know, I'm a preacher, everything, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I get that. But it's a life lesson, and this is a good story. And I go to tell him, and this just goes to the scope and sequence of what our children's ministry does. I, I hadn't even planned this. But my son, my seven-year-old is like, Dad, I already know the story. It's about the brothers and the soup and all that. You're kind of outing yourself there, Joel. Anyway, <clears throat> so... He tells me he knows the story. And, and I was like, okay, well... That's amazing. This, that's what you're doing. Now, here's the story. For those of you that are new, this is an amazing story. It's a story about these two brothers in the book of Genesis. One's named Jacob, and Jacob's kind of a smooth-skinned mama's boy, stays at home, not really, doesn't really do a lot um, outside. And his brother Esau is the opposite of that. Esau is like this hairy hunter, the Ted Nugent of the book of Genesis, and he's just like this carpet of body hair all over him. This Chewbacca of a man is Esau. And Esau goes off hunting and he comes back and the word they use is he's famished. And if you know guys like Esau, you know they don't want to come back famished. They want to come back bragging about what they killed. And he comes back 
and his brother Jacob is cooking soup. And he says, quick, give me some of that soup. I'm, I'm starving. And his brother, who always is looking for an angle, says to Esau, I'll give it to you if you'll give me your birthright. Now, I don't have time to explain to you how big a deal birthright is, but it was basically like he was going to get like 75%, 80% of the inheritance instead of the, um, you know, 25% he, he was due as the younger brother. He's trying to talk him out of his status, of his inheritance, all this stuff for a bowl of soup. And in a moment of weakness, Esau does it. Now, it is really easy to hear this story and be like, well, that's dumb. But the truth is, who does this? Well, I do this. And you do this. If it's the right bowl of soup. We'll, we'll trade the unthinkable for the worthless in the moment. And I don't know, what do you want to call this? Do you want to call this impulse control disorder? Addiction? Human condition? Because the truth is, this is in all of us. And the rest of the Hebrew scriptures is basically this story of people, because the word for this is idolatry. It's, it's giving something a weight that it does not deserve and will ultimately destroy you for doing it. And the rest of the Hebrew scripture is basically this story happening over and over again, writ large. The, the, the names and the faces change and the bowl of soup changes, but it's basically the same thing over and over again. And so the prophets, these people who are raised up by God, who speak not just to the kings, but to everyone, these prophets over and over again are basically saying, how do you like your soup? How's that working out for you? Isaiah, who's one of the most known prophets in the Bible, Isaiah, for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he's basically saying that. He's saying, like, you chose it, this is what you got, how do you like it? But then in chapter 40, the tone changes. All of a sudden, Isaiah starts saying this. God saying through Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. The consequences have been done. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All four Gospels start off quoting this passage. This is a word of hope. There's a reason Dr. King when he gives his I have a dream sermon, quotes this. Because this is the deepest desires of the human heart. That tomorrow could be different than yesterday. That 2023 doesn't have to be like 2022. Before Jesus comes into public adult ministry, there's this bizarre character in the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, he dresses like a Star Wars character and eats like a reality TV show star. He is a bizarre character. 
And he preaches the most unpopular sermons ever, except they were incredibly popular. Here's what it do, he does in Matthew chapter 3. Look at this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! Change! Your life is messed up. Stop it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes that passage, Isaiah 40. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. People are coming from all over the country. They're, they're walking and riding you know, days, maybe weeks, just to hear this message. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, people like me, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with change, with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of the stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here's what John the Baptist is saying. Say you're sorry. Make amends. Take a moral inventory. Repent. Change. Now, in my experience, people don't line up for these kind of sermons. We don't line up for this kind of advice. We like the fortune cookie stuff. Like, you're doing it. Everything you need is within you. You know, like, you know, be true to your... We like that kind of stuff, but that is not what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, repent, and look who he's saying it to. Religious people. And the only thing crazier than he's doing it, than him saying that, is that they're doing it. Um, and, and then they're getting baptized, and that sounds like normal to us, but that is not what Jews did. Jews did not get baptized. Jews are the ones who baptized people because when you were getting baptized, it was a Gentile who was wanting to be a Jew, and they were saying, okay, you can be a Jew if you go through the process of the Exodus like our forefathers and mothers. If you will walk, pass through the waters. And now John the Baptist is saying, look, we're so messed up, we got to start over. And then to the religious people, he's saying, you know what? You have, you've, you've been, your life has been on cruise control for so long because you think, hey, my bloodline is from Abraham. We're good. God chose Abraham. And, and John the Baptist is saying, you know, you remember how God chose Abraham? They were in their 90s and God gave them a baby. And if God can do that, if you're not living out the purposes of God's people, he can make those rocks into God's people. He doesn't need you and stop resting on your laurels. So maybe that's why you're here today. You know, we show up to church, we, we, you know, turning over a new leaf, we put down the bottle or the skull can or the candy or whatever, we're white-knuckling, cold turkeying, going dry, getting clean, saying sorries and making amends, and that's when it happens.
That's when you run into it. The resistance. The thing that's inside every person. When all of a sudden, it seems like the soup starts talking. Hey, it's not that bad. Remember, you could, you could just do this once or twice a week. You, you don't have to go cold turkey. And all of a sudden, the thing that we have in common is we find that for all our well wishes, it's really, really hard to really change. In fact, we might not even be able to do it at all. And ironically, Christians believe this is where real change can begin. Some of us have been in recovery, and you know that the first step of recovery is to realize you can't do it. I've been to a lot of recovery groups in my life, and here, this is how AA most famously puts it, but these are the 12 steps of AA. First step, we admitted we were powerless. The soup had a voice louder than I did. It had a strength that I did not have. And we were powerless. Oh, go back. Word six. Whoa, we are going through these steps quickly. <laughs> we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Number two, came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, yeah, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Number seven, we humbly asked him to remove all of our shortcomings. Number eight, we made a list of the persons that we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Number nine, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so would injure them. Number 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. And number 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as to the results of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all other affairs. Do you see the basic principle of this? We cannot change, but we can surrender. We cannot change on our own, but we can humbly, with others, ask for help from the one who can change us. Now, this is really important, because I don't know what your bowl of soup is, but I'd be surprised if you didn't already know yourself. And Jesus is going to call us to do a lot of stuff. He's going to call us to change a lot of stuff. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to ask you to not ask. He's the Lord. He's going to tell you. He's going to tell you to change your habits from our love life to our finances to your relationships to your sexual habits to the way you look at women or the way you look at men to how you think about marriage or being single or the way we approach God or everything. Jesus at the end of his gospel is going to say, go teach 
uh, people how to obey all of my commands. Not teach people all of my commands, but teach them how to obey. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do today. Because that, just obeying his commands, it's impossible. But we hear Jesus say later that nothing is impossible with God. And, and so what at first from John the Baptist sounds like this angry rant from a preacher who's cranky because he's got itchy clothes on or whatever is actually a word of hope. It's the stuff fairy tales are made of. It, it's, it's your life doesn't have to be this way. Your marriage doesn't have to be this way. Your, your, your world doesn't have to be this way. Repent, hate your sin as much as the people it's hurting hate it, as much as it's hurting you. Because God doesn't hate you, but God hates sin. And God hates the way we destroy ourselves and the people around us. Well, what's that? What's next? Well, that's when the good news comes in. Because when you're willing to do a serious moral inventory of your own stuff, you are ready for the two best words in the Bible. The very next verses. Then Jesus. It's at rock bottom you meet the rock. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? But Jesus replied, let it be so now for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and John, he's going to get baptized, and John is like, No, no, uh, not you. Everybody but you. That was meant for everybody else, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? It means Jesus came to this moment because you had to come to this moment. Leslie and I, about a year ago, right now, we were with our five kids at Disney World. And um, I hope they don't plan on us taking them to college because that was what they chose. So anyway, (laughs) but we're at Disney World and um, it was great and fun, but if you've been, you know there are like super long lines everywhere you go. But did you know that if you're a celebrity, you don't have to wait in a line at Disney World? I'm sure it's true at like Six Flags and I guess Magic Springs, I don't know. But anyway, um, but like this is true, like Kevin Hart. He went to Disney World, and his, him and his family didn't have to wait in line. The Kardashians, when they go, they don't have to wait in line. And I get it. I get it. I mean, can you imagine how many people would be, like, trying to tell Kevin, Jark, Kevin Hart his own jokes while he's in line? I understand that. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus stood in a line he did not have to because you didn't get a choice to opt out of that line. That's what Jesus is doing here. If you're interested in baptism, because we believe that baptism is where Jesus came so you could meet Jesus where he's at. If we're doing a baptism class January 22nd at 1 o'clock in this building, and if you'd like to know more about that, you can email Cheryl at pvcc.org. But here's a, a preview of coming attractions. When Jesus is baptized, he's doing that to meet you where you're at. He would live out in this moment 
He is living out the true meaning of his name, Jesus, which means to save people from their sins. And when you think sin, don't think of that last time you said a dirty word. Don't think about that time you smoked a cigarette. Think deeper than that. Think about how you always try to make the conversation go back to you and your accomplishments. Think about how angry you get when you're listening to the news or on social media. Or think about how the stuff you just can't quit doing keeps coming back and how your mind endlessly supplies excuses that you know honestly don't cut the mustard. Here's how one of the earliest followers of Jesus described this. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he describes it like this. Starting in verse 15, he says, You know what? I don't understand what I do. I no longer make sense to myself. For what I want to do, the good stuff, I don't do that. What, what I hate, I keep on doing. What is this but a description of the bowl of soup? I, I don't make sense to myself anymore. I, the things that are good, I, I find myself not doing. And the things that are bad, the things that I hate, the things that I know are destroying me, those are the things I just can't quit doing. This is the human condition. And it, to me, it's encouraging that one of the first followers of Jesus, when he's describing his own life testimony, is saying, I know what that's like. I've had that bowl of soup. I've had it over and over and over again. And then at the end of this, after he describes in vivid details in these 10 verses what it feels like to constantly be choosing against your own self-interest and the interest of the people that are around you, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What? That does not seem like the way that idea should have logically gone. But that is the only thing that can actually change you. That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming to give you not just grace, but a transforming kind of power. So why are we talking about this? Because I grew up here. I grew up in Arkansas. I grew up in church. And I have seen a lot of people who know the basic stuff that I just said. They've got the t-shirts, they've got the bumper stickers, but their life looks just like everybody else. In my experience, there's not a correlation between having a Jesus bumper sticker and being a real follower of Jesus. And you know that because you've driven in rush hour in Little Rock. You've seen those bumper stickers and you've also seen those fingers. Said another way, a lot of people are culturally Christian. We do it because what our parents or grandparents did is comfortable and familiar, but they're not a follower of Jesus for the real reason that Jesus will ruin your life. At least he'll ruin your plans for your life. Because Jesus never says, hey, invite me into your life. He doesn't want in your life. Your life's a dumpster fire. He's trying to invite you into his life. He's trying to invite you into a totally different kind of life. And the good news is, because of Jesus being on earth, because of the gospel, because Jesus chose to stand in the line with us, you can become like him. 
You really can become the kind of person who's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when you and your spouse are in a disagreement, responding with humility and grace instead of blowing up? Can you imagine having the kind of peace that comes from having no enemies or rivals? Can you imagine the kind of life that comes from stepping off the treadmill of consuming the next thing over and over again, assuming this bowl, this bowl of soup's different? Can you imagine that? Because what I'm describing, a life full of hope and without crushing anxiety or despair, is not just a life for the select few. It is the ordinary life experience of millions of people who have committed their life to following Jesus. If that sounds like the good kind of life you'd like, then the good news of Jesus is you can have it. And since this is the time of year where we're talking a lot about change and we're wanting to make change, and since 95% of New Year's resolutions don't make it through the month of January, Actually, on the way to church this morning, I passed a church that had a sign. May your, all your troubles last as long as your resolutions. <laughs> Which I thought, oh, that was a positive spin on that. It's like we all know we want to change, but we can't find the means to do it. When I was a teenager, I lived in the house that we live in now. I live, I, I live in the house I grew up in, and I lived in the basement when I was a teenager. And um, I was not a, what you'd call a clean kid. I had, you know, messy room, all that kind of stuff. And my parents were always like, Jonathan, you live in the basement, we're out in the country, you should clean your room because you'll get like insects and bugs and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get on that. Well, anyway, one day I come home and I have a six-foot snakeskin in my room. Right. So I tell mom and dad, and I'm like, what is this? I hate snakes. I hate them with a passion. I am terrified of snakes. So I'm like, what, what do I do with this? And my mom and dad are like, it's, you, your room is so messy, you've got to clean it up. So I channel my inner Martha Stewart, and I start, I mean, bleach and rags and vacuum and brooms and, you know, all that. And I cleaned for days, and I never found that snake or how that snake got in. Because my mom had put the snake skin in my room. <laughs> what a cruel, vindictive woman. Am I right? Is that what y'all were clapping for, I assumed? <laughs> Bring that up to her next time you see her. But you know how long that change lasted? I'm going to be clean. I'm going to keep my room clean. About a week. Because fear can only do so much. But hope and the power of the Spirit, you don't have to live this way. And so practically speaking, since we're preaching what we practice, one of the things we regularly practice around here is a spiritual habit that if you're going to put church words on it is confession and repentance in community. That's it. And it doesn't primarily happen in assembly. In fact, it almost never happens in assembly. 
But what it happens, what it does is in these 242 groups, in communities, in smaller communities of brothers and sisters who together are trying to become more like Jesus, uh, we're, we, regeneration is a great ministry that we have. It's a 12-step program for everybody who's struggling with anything from addiction to anxiety to alcoholism to people-pleasing to porn addiction. It's, it's people who are just trying to basically take seriously their repentance in their life. And there's two more weeks of open enrollments for regeneration right now. A lot of people are going through it in our church. It is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And if you'd like to, um, if you would like to take your change seriously, then you can email Cheryl at pvcc.org. Um, there's two more weeks of open enrollment for that. If you want to know more about joining a 242 group, you can go on pvcc.org and you can sign up or you can go to the welcome booth in the back. Let me tell you what happens. When you go through hard times or when you decide, you know what, this is not a bowl of soup, I'm interested in making the trade-in anymore. When you tell... The people, the brothers and sisters in your 242 group, what you're carrying, what you're going with, let me tell you what they don't do. They don't say, oh, that's awful, how dare you? And they don't say what I've seen other places do in the Bible Belt from time to time. Would you share all the details so I can pray more effectively? No, they don't. I've seen this for the last three years. People in this church will listen to you, they'll hear what you're carrying, and they'll say, is that it? And they'll pray for you, for you to be healed and for God to do his work in you. And I've seen this time and time again. People don't leave with guilt. They live with relief and hope. And the reason that the brothers and sisters in your group will treat you that way is because what you're carrying might not be their bowl of soup, but we've all got one. We've all got one. We've got moments in time we traded that we would trade anything to get back. And the reason we don't judge each other, the reason we particularly don't judge each other's sin, is because I know enough about myself you know enough about yourself to recognize the worst in someone else is probably the thing I have the most in common with them. And the way we surrender to God is by surrendering to each other and letting other people pray for us. <sighs> Come on. You know this. We can't change on our own. But we can change. We can be changed. We can be changed by the power of God in His church with God's help and with each other. And I know, I know that there are people here right now thinking, not me. You don't know my soup. You don't know my problem. I've tried to change. I've tried to change. And I would just ask you a question. What year is it? January 8th. Since the year of our Lord. 
2,023 years ago, the entire world has agreed that something happened that has changed human history. And you may think that you can't be changed, but as you drive today past hospitals that bear the names of the followers of this man, the idea of hospitals that come from this man, as you think back to your university that you went to or wanted to go to, that came from this man who taught us to learn about the universe, as you think about how every human being matters and the idea of human rights and all these things, Jesus changed the world. For, 20, for 2,023 years, the world has been counting down the years since this man came. He changed the world, and he can change you. You can live a better story. In the words of Isaiah, every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be made low and the glory of the Lord will be revealed through all the earth. It's time to prepare the way. It's time to change how we change.